It's my joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to John chapter 14 this morning. I'm going to read here in a moment verses 1 through 10, and we're going to focus on verse 6. As you turn there, a couple of observations. Um, one is, uh, it's kind of uncomfortable at how good a villain Scott Perrin is. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, one of his kids saying, why does my dad always have to be the bad guy? He's really good at it. I'm kind of disappointed we didn't sing the key song this morning. It was a hit with my grandchildren who are here who are asking their dad, Dad, put, put the key song on Spotify. He said, it's not there. Why not? It is a fun song, Pastor Nate. We need to... Seeing that sometime soon. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone do we know the true story of the world. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would, also have, known, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Join me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we come this morning to hear Your words. To hear about the way of the kingdom. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to hear. Help us to receive. Help it to take root and bear fruit in the days ahead. Oh Lord, we open Your Word for the glory of Your name and the good of our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Troubled hearts. That is a phrase that accurately describes many, if not most, people in our world today. Troubled hearts. After all, there's much to be troubled about. Turn on the TV and watch the news and you'll hear about war and possibly escalating war, 
You hear about injustice all around the world. We understand there's economic instability here and all over the world. We hear about corruption day after day. We live in a time of moral decay where that which is wrong is called right and advocated for. And and so much of the right way to see the world is turned upside down and, and we're hammered in with it all of the time. Not to mention the personal difficulties that we face, a lot of which we cause ourselves by our own struggles with sin. A lot of simply what it means to live in a sinful world. Some of you are going through great difficulties right now or have in the past. There is much to be troubled about. But in such a world, Jesus says in John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, at first glance, that sounds sort of cliche. It, it, it sounds almost hollow. It, it, it sounds like it's akin, to, it's akin to saying to a hungry person, be full and you don't offer them any food. All of the troubles around us, let not your heart be troubled. And it is cliche and it is hollow unless the one who says it has the authority to say it. And it is cliche and it is sorrow unless the one who says it is sovereign over the troubles of this world. You see, nobody within this world, who is a part of the problem. And all of us are, because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, can say to someone on our own authority, let not your heart be troubled. Why not? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. You just don't turn it off or on. But... But there is one who speaks with such authority. There is one who speaks in troubled times. As we look in our text this morning, it is just such a troubled time as almost all times in this fallen world are. In fact, we read in John 13.21, Jesus was troubled in His spirit. The one who says, let not your heart be troubled. It says He was troubled in His spirit. Spirit. Well, why? Because of what he was about to face, what he was about to do. What troubled Jesus in his spirit at this time is the reason he can say to us, let not your heart be troubled. He is hours away from the cross. He is about to bear the wrath of guilty sinners. He's about to pay the penalty that guilty sinners deserve. So because He was troubled with His mission on the cross, He can say to us with sovereign authority, let not your hearts be troubled. But His disciples had just heard Him reveal that there was a betrayer even among their number. There was one who was going to turn on Him. He had just told Peter, one of the key disciples, that he would deny him three times. 
Within hours, He was headed to the cross. He tells His disciples that He is is leaving. And He goes out of His way to, to show them how that's a good thing. And yet they don't get it. And, and this one with sovereign authority and power washes his disciples' feet. Gives this beautiful picture of the kingdom. But foot washing, how does that inspire you? In the midst of all that seems to be teetering in the wrong direction. Their heads were spinning. How could anyone say, let not your heart be troubled in this context? The answer to that question is found in summary form in one verse. And it's a verse that we're going to focus on this morning. It's in John 14.6. Here's how he can say, let not your heart be troubled. Because Jesus said to them, I am the way. The truth and the life. Now that definite article there in front of each one of those is very important. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We start considering just those first two words of what Jesus said. I am. And we see that Jesus demands total allegiance. When Jesus says, I am, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he says, I am, he's making a very specific claim. And it's a claim that he makes seven times in the Gospel of John. And before he starts making that claim, he makes this claim in John 8.58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Then he goes on to say, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10.9. I am the good shepherd, John 10.11 and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11.25. And here, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14.6. And later in John 15.5, he will say, I am the vine. I am. And then all of these powerful pictures about who He is. And His people are to hear who He is and be comforted. It goes all the way back to God's self-revelation in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God had raised Moses up to be the mediator. The people were in bondage in Egypt and God is sending Moses to go before Pharaoh the representative enemy of the people of God, and declare to them to let the people go. And, and Moses says, uh, you've got the wrong person, but, but yet God presses in and ultimately says, who should I say sent me? In Exodus 3.14, God reveals Himself to Moses and says, I am who I am. And He said this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am the name of the true and living God, the the creator of all things, the one who has sovereign authority over everything. The Lord Yahweh in the Old Testament, this covenant God. And Jesus takes his name. An audacious claim. Jesus is claiming to be 
God in flesh. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, no Jew would ever claim to be God, and yet Jesus is a Jew, and he claims to be God. To claim to be God was considered blasphemy. No one making something up would make that claim up because you would immediately be ostracized, and yet Jesus makes this claim. And not only does he make this claim, all kinds of people believe him, including many Jews. So much so that that this movement founded on him, the one who says, I am and can point to himself, transforms the world. Do you see the claim that he's making here? I am. I am God. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.1, believe in God, believe also in me. Elsewhere, he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12.8, Mark 2.28, Luke 6.5. Do you see this? He is claiming to be God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's the claim that he's making. That's the one who can say, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, think about this. With Jesus, you get genuine humility. Jesus, the great I am, God in flesh, washes the feet of disciples. He he, he takes the form of a servant. He does the most menial task. Yes, and He does it after He cared for the poor. After He gravitated to outcast, After He ate with tax collectors and sinners. The One who came, God in flesh, came in genuine humility. But there's one thing about genuine humility. It never takes on false humility. tells the truth. It's not marked by pretense. Just sort of feigning humility. So even though Jesus shows us genuine humility with the incredible things that He does, He is honest about who He is. I and the Father are one. I am. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, these two things coming together, it's destabilizing, it's shocking. Because our picture is the more authority you have, the more power that you have, it gives you the opportunity not to do these menial servant type things. But Jesus is the opposite. Jesus says exactly who He is, and then He acts in ways that seem to betray according to a mind not formed by the Gospel. They seem to betray who He is. A sovereign doesn't do that. One who has absolute authority doesn't do that. But these things keep coming together. And they they startle us. And they startle those at this time. 
So Jesus says things like he's going to go to the cross, and his disciples say, no way, look at who you are. That's not for you, and yet that's exactly what he came to do. You see, the claim is that he is God in human flesh. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is identified as the Word. And then in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have these incredible pictures of Jesus' foot washing. We have Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus. And we read, Jesus wept. Well, is He the sovereign authority of all? Is He God in human flesh? Is He one who has power over all things? Or is He one who looks at things in this life and weeps? Yes. You see, Jesus demands total allegiance. He demands that you come to Him on His own terms. You can't pick and choose. Some of us want sovereign and distant, but not weeping, not foot washing. Some of us want weeping and foot washing, but but not sovereign and powerful and, and mighty. There is no negotiation. He is who He is. He is the sovereign Lord. And He is the one who came on a mission and took the form of a servant. That's who He is. His claims and His actions demand a response. You can't embrace Him with reservations. You can't embrace Him with exclusions. Let me put it to you this way. The message of Jesus is is essentially this. Crown me or kill me. Those are your choices. But don't dare act like you can be middle of the road about me. Either fall down and worship me or have done with me. Those are the, those are the options. I, I love C.S. Lewis here who, who, who says this, Jesus produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, and adoration. There is no trace of people expressing mild approval about Jesus. You don't have the ground to say, you know, all those claims about deity and cross and blood. and I'm not into that, but man, Jesus was a great teacher. He will not allow you to go there. If He was not God in human flesh, if He is not the I am, He is a liar or a madman. You come to Him on His own terms. No room for a good moral teacher and an inspirational leader, but one who is not God, who's not sovereign Lord. He demands total allegiance. What you do with Jesus is not negotiate with Him. What you do is bow before Him. You bow before Him as Savior and Lord and your only hope. You bow before Him as the one in whom all of your hope is found. You see, when the great I Am comes in human flesh, 
He has all the authority and right in the world to say, let not your heart be troubled, because the great I am came, and his spirit was troubled, so yours and mine doesn't have to be. Jesus demands total allegiance. He is the I am who has the authority to say, let not your heart be troubled. But secondly, Jesus is the only way to the Father. That that second phrase here that's so important. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There, There are two parts of this that are key. Jesus not only says, I am the way, he points out he is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice that the claim here is not just simply that Jesus is a way. He is not a way among many ways. He is not a choice that you make among competing choices. He is the way. And all other ways are the broad road that leads to destruction. Only Jesus is the narrow path that leads to life. He is removing any thought that we consider that we could consider him just simply a way. Rather, he is the way or the only way. In fact, no one comes to the Father except through him. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation found anywhere outside of Jesus Christ and conscious faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation only found in Jesus. Look at Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1 again, and he's, he's building up to saying he's the way here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Reference to the second coming of Christ. And I will take you to myself. Definition of heaven or the eternal state. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we did not know where you were going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' response to that question is, I am the way. I am the way. Uh, I've gone to the, the Father's house. That's where I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place. There, there is room for all who come through faith in me because I am the way. You see, Where I am, you may also be as a reference to God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom, the triumph of it in a new heaven and new earth. And Jesus says, you know the way. He's stopping up his ears like they did so often and like we do so often and just will not accept what Jesus says on his own terms. But Jesus says, you know the way because I am the way. I don't just show the way. I am the way. I am the path. And I am the destination. Did did you see that when he's talking about preparing a place in the Father's house? He says that where I am, you may be also. See, that's the glory of the eternal state. In the very presence of Jesus forever and ever. I am the path. I am the root. 
And I am the destination as well. You see, this changes everything. Now, there's a, there's a lot of consternation about claiming exclusive salvation in Jesus or, or other groups that, that claim exclusive salvation. The idea is arrogant. How can you say that this is the only way and all other ways are wrong? No, it's the only way that you can be humble. The only way that you can be humble. You know, there's this, there's this old illustration of uh, the idea that, uh, you know, think about it like this. There are, there are blind men and there's an elephant. And they're all trying to figure out what this is. So, so one puts his arms around the leg and says, this is a trunk, says, this is a tree. And one grabs the tail and says, this is a rope. And one grabs the... What do you call that thing? Snout? Trunk. <laughs> and I'm an Alabama fan. I should know this. Well, grabs the trunk and says, this is a snake. And one's on top in the ear and says, this is, a, this is a fan. And the idea of this illustration is, is, you know, these people are just doing the best they can from their own perspective to say what it is. And it's only when you put it all together that you can really know what it is. And then they say, and that's what religion is like. Everybody's got a little part of the truth and you add it all together. I've never heard something more arrogant in my entire life. Now, how does that illustration work? The person telling that story stands outside of it all and they see the whole thing. And they just shake their heads at these sad little people who do their best to understand the best that they can. But they see the whole thing. You know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity all claim exclusive ways of salvation. But this person stands outside all of the major world religions and say, I know there's a little bit here and a little bit there and I can see where they all are. How arrogant is that? To think that you have developed this own thing where you stand outside of all the major world religions and you have decided what the way is. Now let me tell you how you can be humble. The only way that you can be humble is if you know that your way into the way is by nothing but the grace of God. You don't look at other people and think, oh, I found this truth and I can't believe you you dumb people over there just don't get it. No, you say, I am lost and I was found. I didn't get myself unlost. This is what God has done and this is what He can do for you. You don't shake your head at lost people because you were a lost person outside of the sovereign grace of God. You see, this claim here that's being made that no one comes to the Father except through me drives us to our knees and ought to make us the most humble people in the world dealing with everybody, including those people who don't yet believe in Jesus around the world. But you see, it's also this. He is the way. This is... He is the way to the Father. You see, when you think about God as an abstraction, then, then, then the idea here is, is a taskmaster, and i got to do what I need to try to do to appease Him. And if that's the way you think about God, you'll never measure up. As I remind you again and again, you and I don't even measure up to our own standards, much less whatever God we're looking to standards. So you have sort of a taskmaster 
slave relationship. And that leads to bondage, not freedom. But Jesus comes in, he says, I am the way to the Father. And the way is that we are in Christ and He is the beloved Son. And in Him, we are the adopted children of God. So we are swept into this relationship with, with, with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the children of God. And so as the children of God, our relationship is not taskmaster and we are not in bondage. It's a relationship forged by grace. You know, you think about uh, you may be an employee at a job and you don't get the job done, you get fired. Well, I've got eight kids and they don't always do what I want them to do, believe it or not. But you know what? I don't think any of them have ever worried about being fired. Why? Because they're my children. I love them. I tell them all the time, you know, you may rob banks one day. I'll still love you. I won't like it. But I'm not going anywhere, no matter what you do. You will always be my child, and I will always love you. See, that's not a relationship of taskmaster and servant. That's not a relationship of bondage. That's a relationship of freedom. Now, I am woefully inadequate, and yet God's love is perfect. You see, to acknowledge Jesus as the way, the way to the Father. And the only way to the Father is to acknowledge that there's a way to be a child of God. And there's a way to live your life in freedom, not bondage. And by the way, the way was crucified for us. Think about that. Think about the implications for that's the way we see the world. The one who is the great I am, the, the sovereign Lord, take on human flesh to dwell among us. The one who is the only way, the exclusive way, was crucified for us. What's our itinerary? Trust and follow Jesus. That leads us to the second thing. Jesus is the only full and final revelation of the Father. He's the truth. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not, I point to the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is the living Word. The Word of God is the truth of God. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of the truth of God. He is the living Word. He is the Word made flesh. He's the embodiment of the truth. Truth inheres in Jesus. Jesus is the ground and essence of the truth. Truth is truth because of Jesus who is the truth. Matthew 23, 34, Jesus said, I sent you prophets and wise men. His whole point is you didn't listen to them. Then it says in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, listen to this. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But... In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The verb there means completely, finally. It has come to a point. The revelation of God comes to Jesus. He is the full and final revelation of God. You and I don't need to be seeking other voices out there to hear from God. We have heard from God fully and finally in Jesus. In Jesus, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus, we have the truth. 
Hebrews 1 continues, Whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Colossians 1.15 says He is the image of the invisible God. John 1, He is the Word made flesh, the Logos made flesh. The Logos, the Word of God made flesh, but the Word at that time also carried the idea of, of reason and, 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 and purpose and meaning. Purpose and meaning is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh, the one in whom we reason out the world, the one in whom we explain the world, the one in whom we know the true story of the world, the one in whom we find meaning and purpose. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.21 that our lives are a pursuit of the truth as it is in Jesus. Because we only know what's true as it is in Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, used to talk about True truth. So there are certain things that are true, but they don't carry the level of authoritative truth. They are true because they are derivative of what is true truth. You see, the world is defined by what God has said in His Word and the gospel that it contains. You can't explain this world apart from that rightly. There's a way that seems right to a man. The writer of Proverbs says, And its end is destruction. There are all kinds of ways that look good to us. There are all kinds of truths that are appealing to us. But ultimately, we have to ground our lives in the true truth of Jesus. We only pursue truth as it is in Jesus. Look with me at verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the truth. He is the representative of the Father, the exact representative of the Father. He and the Father are one. And then he says, How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. You know, everybody's got to have something to live for. Everybody. Everybody has to have a reason, a purpose, a meaning. There's something that causes you to get out of bed in the morning. Everybody's got some truth that guides them. Everybody. Every person in this room, everybody you know, everybody in the world has some sort of thing that they have put at the level of, this is how I order my life. This is the truth that guides me. Here's the deal. If that's anything but Jesus, it's an idol. And if it's anything but Jesus, it can't do for you what you need. Why? Whatever you choose outside of Christ will control you. It's supposed to. It'll control you. Whatever's most important. That's the way I make my decisions. That's the way I decide what I'm going to do. Whether it's fame, whether it's money, whether it's, it's something really good by, by being a charitable person, it will control you. But whatever you choose that's outside of Christ, it will control you, but it cannot love you. 
whatever you decide that is a truth of primary importance is not a person who says, I am the truth. What you and I need is to be graced, to be loved into the family. You see, let, let's say you say, well, well, I mean, I, I, just, I just can't find truth that makes my life meaningful. I'm going to give up on truth. I'm just going to pursue love. Well, love like that is not true. And you will find it empty as well. Do, do you get this? There, there is one who came as the Word made flesh. Truth in a person. It tells us in John 1 that He came full of grace and truth. And He's the one of whom it said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He is the one in whom we can be adopted into the family of God. You see, in Jesus and Jesus alone, we have the truth, the absolute truth that can love you. Truth has become a person. It's not an abstraction. It's not a thing. It's a person, and His name is Jesus. And in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, there is the full and final definition of love. The revelation of God in Jesus brings together grace and truth. It brings together love and truth in a way we could never understand it in any other way. Separates Christianity from every other religion in the world, and every other path that we forge on our own. But I've got news for you. Not only was the way crucified, the truth was mocked and ridiculed and spat upon for you. Think about that. Do, do you see how these, these things come together and, and there's, this, there's this sort of unsettling tension in it? The one who can say, I am God in human flesh. I am not just a way. I am the way. And then He's crucified. See, He's calling us a way that, that nobody else would ever or has ever called anyone. And the one who can say in His very person, I am the truth, and He allows Himself to be mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. And He does it for us. Look at John 14.6 again. We see that Jesus is the only way to eternal and abundant life. The life. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't point to a life. He's, just, he's not just a model of a life as it ought to be lived. He's not an exemplar of life. He makes the claim that He is the life. You see, Christianity is Christ. You, like J.C. Rowell said, if you take Jesus out of the Bible, it's a very dark book. It's Jesus that makes the biblical story work in a way that it's rightly called good news. Because the book is about Jesus. Christianity is Christ. It's the person of Christ. He is the life. And He comes in to change us. 
He gives us life. He comes in and by His sovereign grace, we know the work of regeneration. We know the work of, of, of being raised to spiritual life. We know that by the Spirit of Christ, we are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He is the one who says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the life He's speaking of can only be known in Him. He is the life. Life apart from Him is only characterized by death. On this side of the fall into sin, what you and I are on apart from Him is a death walk. We're headed toward an eternal judgment. But He comes in and He gives us life. And He has the power and authority to do it. Because He's resurrected from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. The Bible says He came as the first fruits of our resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection of all who would believe. And in Him, we, are, we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. One day we will be raised, body be reunited with Spirit forever and ever, to be with Him forever and ever. He is the one who gives life. He is the source of life. That is human life in the beginning. But He is the source of eternal life. And because He's the source of eternal life, because He comes in and gives us life, the life we live here and now is not just a death march. It can rightly be described as abundant life. As it says in John 10. He says, I give you life. Abundantly. Do you you see what we have in Christ? John 5.26 says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. 1 John 1.1 says that Jesus is the Word of life. 1 John 5.12 says whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's only found in Him. What an answer to a question. I am the way, the truth, and the light. That self-identification of Jesus shines light out of the darkness from beginning to end, from start to finish. You see, when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, He's saying that He is all we need now and forever. The only way we can be on the way is in Him based on what He has done for us. The only way our lives can be grounded in the truth is in Him. We know the truth as it is in Jesus. The only way our lives can be connected to the life who is Jesus is through faith in Him. But through faith in Him, 
not only this moment is marked by us being on the way, knowing the truth, and having the life. It extends into all eternity. Gospel light from beginning to end. You see, as the way, Jesus destroys the wall that divides sinners from Himself, from God. The, the, the wall that divides us, the wall of our sin is, is broken through because He is the way. He's the one who comes and on His mission, He redeems His people. And as the truth, Jesus repudiates all the false stories about this world that distort our relation to God. And He tells us the true story of the world, the the story that can rightly be described even in a fallen world, even in a troubled world, as good news. And it's good news that lasts forever and ever. And as the life, Jesus defeats that last and great enemy of fallen humanity, death that came into the world because of sin. And He liberates us for abundant life here and now into all eternity. This is only in Jesus. But it is in Jesus. You see, what He says here, He's the only way to the Father. But do you remember the promise at the beginning where he's talking about the way, and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. The room is abundant. All who believe, all who trust, all who put their faith in Him. You see, what this self-identification of Jesus says is any notion that you think you use Jesus to get something you want more than Him is a repudiation of Jesus. This always humbles us. What this says is that whenever you and I think a way sounds really good, apart from Him, it's a lie. And we run back and flee to the way. Whenever you and I think we can know what is truth apart from Him, we repudiate what is welled up in our heart and mind. And we flee back to the One who is the truth. And whenever you and I think we can make a life that is not centered and grounded and moving toward Him, we reject it. You see, none of our thoughts outside of Him are ultimate. So we surrender them all to Him because He alone is preeminent. You see, there is good news for troubled hearts. There is one who can rightly say, and He says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for your glorious Word. I thank You for this portion of Your Word that is, that is just dripping with Your glory and Your might. 
And Lord, I pray that as we hear it this morning and, and, and as we think about it right now in this moment, we would understand that we can have many reactions, but we cannot simply be in the middle. We can't be lukewarm. The only way that we can claim that space is if we haven't truly understood what's said. Oh Lord, I pray that the response in this room would be to crown Him. Even those that have never done that before, that this would be the first time to bow before Him and say, I have nothing to negotiate. I need the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is my only hope. And Lord, I pray that all in this room will be rejuvenated with a sense of gospel humility, but it's genuine hum- humility. You see, false humility, Lord, w- w- would cause us to go out in the world and act like we don't know things that are true that are true, but we, no, you, you've not called us to that. We speak the truth without apology, but we love and serve people in ways that they don't even understand. Oh Lord, help us to be those people who understand the way of the kingdom and understand it doesn't fit into any paradigm that's ever been out there. Oh Lord, help us to trust, to follow, to know the humility and the freedom that's found only in Jesus. In His name we pray and for His sake. Amen.